This is They Create World, Episode 29, 50 Years of Namco. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going to delve deep into a 50-year epic, the history of Namco. That's right. Namco is certainly not the oldest company to become involved in the arcade industry or the video game industry or any of that kind of thing, but it is one of the most important of the Japanese companies in arcade game manufacturing and has some aspects to it that are really a lot different from some of its competitors like Sega and Taito and whatnot that are interesting to look at. All right. So I imagine that they came about after the events of World War II, say around the same time as Sega did? Sure. Uh, about the same time, really. The early history is a little bit confused, and some parts of it, I think, have been passed down rather incorrectly from the few sources we have. What we do know is that the company was founded by Masaya Nakamura. Nakamura was born in 1925, so he kind of came of age right in the middle of World War II. After the war, he got a degree in shipbuilding. So he was an engineer, but he wasn't an electrical engineer. He was a shipbuilder, or at least that's what he wanted to be. But he couldn't find a job because this is Japan immediately after the war. There really aren't a lot of jobs in some of these fields. So he has the shipbuilding degree and nothing to do with it. What he does is he goes and works for his father instead. His father had owned a factory before the war that handcrafted shotguns. Hmm. So he was a successful arms manufacturer for hunters, leisure shooters, and the like, obviously, with shotguns like that. But that factory was destroyed in World War II, as was so much of Japan's industry, obviously. After the war, he kind of poked through the rubble, got what parts he could out of the rubble, and used that to set up a gun repair business in the Matsuya department store in Tokyo. Really? Mm-hmm. I would think after the war, they wouldn't have any... As far as I know, Japan doesn't allow any kind of guns outside the police and... Military. They have very strict gun control laws now. They were a little looser back then, but what they focused on were air guns. Ah, okay. So sort of like BB guns. And sure, like. though air guns were eventually restricted in Japan as well. And that's where some of this history interplay gets kind of interesting. The company Namco was established as the Nakamura Manufacturing Company, or in Japanese, Nakamura Saizokusho, which essentially translates as workhouse, which mm -hmm. is like factory, which is like manufacturing. It was founded in 1955. It was founded by uh, Masaya Nakamura and his father actually together. The exact nature of this business is something I've been trying to delve into a little more. And I'm not certain it was fully an amusement company when it was first founded. They had this gun repair business. And they eventually transitioned from repairing guns to also selling guns. Hmm. 
and I think they might have done some of their own manufacturing. I'm not positive about this. There are hints of this, but nothing says this outright. But the interesting thing is, in interviews, Nakamura has said that they basically had to get involved in kind of the toy business when the Japanese government did finally really restrict the ownership of all guns, including air guns. That happened in 1958. That's the law in question. Mm -hmm. Nakamura Manufacturing was established in 1955, so it was established three years before this event that Nakamura himself said necessitated the move to toys. Because what they did is they were selling air guns, and then they could no longer sell air guns. They changed them into children's pop guns for use at fairs and, and the like. So these were toys, essentially. He says he did that. They did that in response to the gun law. The gun law was not passed until 1958. Now, it just so happens, you know, they also sold air guns at some point. It was actually illegal in post-war Japan to own air guns, to sell air guns. It was a law that dated back to actually before the war. There was a panic before the war in Japan about air guns and kids with air guns. So they had actually been illegal since something like the 1930s. They were legalized again in 1955, the year Nakamura Manufacturing was founded. Okay. So I'm wondering if, in fact, the manufacturing that Nakamura Manufacturing was doing was actually these air guns. He had experience building guns before. Right. So it doesn't take much of a leap to go from regular style guns to an air gun. It's just a matter of propellant and maybe a few other knickknacks. Now, I'm not positive that's true. I, I mean, I know they certainly sold air guns. Mm -hmm. I'm not certain that they actually manufactured them, but I've always wondered why the company was called Nakamura Manufacturing. The traditional story of the founding of the company is that it was established in 1955 to operate two rocking horses on the roof of the Matsuya department store. These were not coin-operated rocking horses. They were actually hand-cranked horses. Huh. And, and you ride them for kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's for kids. And then you'd have someone that actually turned a crank in order to cause them to operate. Certainly, they did this. Certainly, at some point in the 1950s, maybe even 1955, the Nakamuras did put these horses, these rocking horses, on the roof of the department store. But why would that business be called Nakamura Manufacturing? There had to be manufacturing something. You would think. I mean, maybe it's a translation thing. Maybe the company was not actually named Nakamura Manufacturing in 1955, and that's an error that's been introduced later. Mm -hmm. So there, there are a number of reasons why this company might have been called Nakamura Manufacturing or not called Nakamura Manufacturing in 1955. It's hard to say for certain. But I have to wonder if they weren't doing a small amount of air gun manufacturing as part of this business as well, and that's why it has that name. And the other interesting thing is, in their own corporate timeline, it says that the company was reorganized in 1959. It was Nakamura Manufacturing Limited when it was founded in 1955, and then in 1959, the name was changed to Nakamura Manufacturing Company Limited. That's a very small name change, but there was a reorganization. There was some kind of change in the company then. And so I'm wondering if maybe that's the point 
that they actually transitioned from doing primarily air gun stuff into doing these children's pop gun type toys because that would line up a lot better with the legal ramifications because air guns were legal between 1955 and 1958. And then suddenly in 1958, that's when those really strict restrictions came in. According to what Nakamura said, he said that they didn't get into the toy stuff until they couldn't do the regular gun stuff anymore. So that would seem to be the 1958-1959 period rather than 1955. That makes sense uh, the way you present it. I take it there's some controversy from a historical standpoint because a lot of this stuff isn't documented properly and a lot of it's pretty murky. Sure, at least in English. Nakamura has certainly given interviews in the past, uh, even to English language sources. Certainly even those authors that have talked to Nakamura directly and have published the results in English, not direct quotes always, but published what they learned in English, even though it's often paraphrasing. Certainly all of them follow this traditional narrative that Nakamura Manufacturing was established in 1955 with these two rocking horse rides. So that's kind of the thing. And I can't find anything that specifically says that they manufactured any guns. So it's a little bit of a leap, but there is one article that appeared in the Sunday Times, British, you know, London Sunday Times, back in the 90s that interviewed Nakamura that has a little different content from many of the other interviews published with Nakamura. And that's the interview where he talks about, first of all, that his father was involved in the business, which no other source had ever mentioned before. Other sources have mentioned that his father was in the gun business, but none of the others had mentioned that he and Messiah Nakamura had actually founded Namco together, what was then Nakamura Manufacturing. It's in that interview that he talks about how they got into these children pop guns after the gun laws changed. That seems to indicate to me that if there was a Nakamura manufacturing, well, two things. First of all, they had the facility to modify air guns into pop guns. Now, you don't necessarily need a big old assembly line or a big old manufacturing capability to be able to do that. Just some specialized tools, maybe a little bit of expertise and some modification of parts. But that does imply to me that they had some kind of manufacturing capacity for right, themselves. Right, if they can do that, they should have at least something resembling, even at a minor level, manufacturing capability. Right, so even though I, I don't have anything that directly says that they manufactured air guns between 55 and 58, only that they sold them, and they definitely did sell them. It started as a gun repair business, and then it expanded to be both a repair business and a new sales business, that implies to me that perhaps Nakamura Manufacturing was actually an air gun manufacturer, at least on a small scale. I mean, they might not have been churning out thousands upon thousands of them or anything like that. But certainly they have the knowledge and the capability to make replacement parts. It makes sense that if you're starting off as a repair business, you can manufacture parts for that repair business, and then you go, oh, well, I have a surplus of all of these parts. I can at least throw together a few new air guns and maybe sell those as a side, too, because they like my repair business, so maybe they don't want to buy a new one from me if it's too far gone. Right. So I think, I wish I had better proof, but I think there's a good chance that 
Nakamura Manufacturing was actually founded as an air gun manufacturer, and the reason it was founded in 1955 is because that's the year that air guns became legal again in Japan, even though they would not remain that way for very long. And then I think that in 1958 or 1959, they transitioned into children's pop guns. Now, somewhere in there, maybe even in 1955, you still have the rocking horses. I mean, that happened, mm-hmm. too. I don't see how that could have possibly been Nan- Nakamura Manufacturing's primary business, because where's the manufacturing in that? Yeah. Turning cranks on two horses. That's not really. That's uh, Nakamura labor. Right. And, and they didn't make the horses themselves. They purchased those and refurbished them. So, I mean, it's not like the manufacturing part of it was making the horses, because they didn't do that. Nakamura installation, delivery, and cranking. Right. So I, my guess is that they were manufacturing guns on a small scale, though I could be wrong. But basically what happened is they had to get into the toy business because they couldn't do the, the air guns anymore. And once they were in the toy business, that got Masai Nakamura thinking, okay, what else can we do? And that's what led him into this rooftop amusement stuff. Because you see, of course, Japan is a country where space is, to put it generously, at a premium. A very, very expensive premium. And it's especially at a premium in, say, Tokyo. Yeah, any major city. Yes, but especially Tokyo. Particularly Tokyo. Before World War II, when some of the first coin-operated amusements were coming in, we talked about this in our Origins of Japanese Coin-Op episode, you had these rooftop spaces that were turned into amusement spaces, and some of the amusements were coin-operated and some of them weren't. It was just this kind of idea of having a recreational amusement place on the roof because the roof wasn't being used for anything else anyway, and it's not like you could open up big recreational facilities in Tokyo just on the ground floor on the street level very easily because space was at such a premium. Mm-hmm. Matsuya Department Stores, as I believe we discussed in our Japanese coin-op episode, was actually the first location to have one of these rooftop recreation spaces, Kaichi Endo's Sportsland. And I believe we actually even brought up the fact that Japanese were interested in actual guns, be them light guns, air guns, or entertainment target practice. And then I think it all went over to light guns eventually, right? That's correct. There was a huge popularity in gun games. That's kind of what David Rosen used to establish some of his first arcades after the war, again, because of those restrictions on guns. This had been the spot of the first rooftop recreation space, but it actually didn't have one at this point after the war. It hadn't been reestablished after World War II. Nakamura got this idea of, well, there's not a a rooftop space here, and our store is in this department store, so why don't we put uh, a couple of horses on the roof there? And so that's what he did. But he didn't make that his primary business for several more years, and that's another indication that Nakamura Manufacturing was doing some actual form of manufacturing. Now, it could be I'm assuming that they were manufacturing air guns in 55 because they were legal in 55 and the restrictions, the really bad restrictions didn't come in until 1958. Though maybe, maybe the timeline's just a little wonky and, and my assumption that it corresponds to the major Japanese gun legislation is incorrect. Maybe in 55, the manufacturing that they started doing even then was actually the children's pop guns. 
but clearly they were making guns, whether they were real guns or toy guns, as their first major business. And this rocking horse thing was a side item. It really was. And you can see the proof of that because the company was established in 55, but it wasn't until 1963 that they actually did any more stuff with the amusement business. So you had this big span of time where they're not doing amusement anything. They're doing something. Right. Other than that one initial rocking horse setup. Right. They're not doing any more. And so clearly the company was not founded primarily for that. It was primarily founded for the manufacturing of these guns. And maybe it was air guns in 55, pop guns a little later. Maybe it was pop guns all along. Mm -hmm. But the important thing to take away from it is that it's got this gun business as its primary thing. And this is a sideline. And then what happens, and it's this one Sunday Times article, is really the only one that goes into any of this in English. Obviously, there could be Japanese sources. Seems like uh, Nakamura is the type of guy that throughout his life had always been happy to give interviews and talk about his past. He's still alive. He's in his 90s now, but he doesn't, to my understanding, really make public appearances or anything anymore, obviously. He's very advanced in age at this point. Right. But he was always happy to give interviews, so he's probably given some in Japanese, too, and maybe some of those could even clear this up, but that's beyond the scope of my knowledge, obviously. Right. We don't know Japanese, and we can't necessarily fly to Japan. That's right. What happens, though, is that eventually his father retires, and I think that's the key thing. Even though the Sunday Times article doesn't explicitly connect all the dots, it mentions that the gun business fades away after his father retires. So I'm assuming that really it's once the elder Nakamura is retiring and he's the one that's the real gun expert. Obviously, Masai has worked for his father in the past, so he at this point he knows, knows a fair stuff, amount. But he doesn't have the decade, years, lifetime of experience. Right. So I'm presuming that that is the catalyst for the company really changing course. So they become an amusement business, and 1963 was the key year for this. The largest and most important uh, at that time department store chain in Japan was the Mitsukoshi department store chain. I don't know enough about the history of Japanese retail to tell you if that department store is still around or if it's still a big deal or, or what. <laughs> Some of our listeners may know. But in 1963, that was the premier store. That was the Sears of Japan. And so in 1963, Mitsukoshi decides to get into the rooftop amusement space business. Because again, this had been something that had been big before the war, but the economy was in such a shambles after the war that a lot of leisure-type pursuits took a long time to filter their way back into the Japanese economy for rather obvious reasons. At this point, Mitsukoshi is deciding to get into the business, and so they contract Masaya Nakamura to build them a rooftop amusement space in their flagship location in uh, the Nihonbashi district of Tokyo. He goes all out for this because, I mean, he's a shipbuilder. He's not an electrical engineer, but he is an engineer. He understands the idea of building things. And this is something that really makes Nakamura and Namco stand out from their competitors. All of the other early major Japanese companies that persisted into the video era were founded by businessmen. Taito was founded by a Russian, Michael Kogan, 
who was a trader. He was first and foremost an import-export guy. Sega was the combination of two companies, as we talked about. And David Rosen, he was a businessman. And the service games guys that were the other half of what became Sega Enterprises, they had experience in the coin-op industry. They were coin people, but they were mostly salespeople too. Marty Bromley was a distributor. Irving Bromberg was a distributor. Dick Stewart was a salesman. They had a technical guy, Ray LaMare, but it was mostly founded by businessmen. And this is the first time that you have someone who's running a business who really understands the how-to, the technical side. He's an engineer, even though it's a shipbuilding engineer. A lot of that is still extremely applicable to just about any aspect of engineering you want to do. Exactly. And that's what makes Namco, which at this point is still Nakamura Manufacturing, kind of a very different kind of company from these others. He constructs an elaborate ride, an actual almost amusement park-like ride, on top of the department store called Roadway Race. And so he puts that in. He puts a fish pond in where children can scoop goldfish out of the fish pond. He puts various other contraptions in there, and he creates this fully realized amusement space on the rooftop of the flagship Mitsukoshi department store. And this goes over so well, it does so well, that Mitsukoshi decides to put rooftop spaces on most or all of its other department store locations, its branch locations in Tokyo. And of course, Nakamura gets the contract for all of that. Yeah, that's going to bring in a lot of money there, and especially since he did it on their flagship place and did very well with that. I certainly want him to build me more of those in my other locations. Exactly. So that's how the company becomes an operator of arcade games. That's how they get into the coin-op business. At this point, even though they are called Nakamura Manufacturing, they're really not manufacturing anything. Obviously, they custom-built this roadway race, but they're not manufacturing coin-operated amusements. At this point, coin-op is still very much an import business, as we talked about in our Japanese arcade episode. There isn't domestic manufacturing going on in that space. That changes when his operating business starts to get threatened. By 1966, you have companies like Taito and Sega that have become very prolific operators of arcades. And they tended to start out in different areas. We talked about David Rosen and his gun corners. He was in movie theaters. He was maybe in, in department stores, but not in the rooftop spaces, maybe in a little separate area. They were moving into retail spaces like supermarkets and whatnot. And of course, when bowling got big, they were moving into bowling alleys. They weren't necessarily getting heavily involved in operating rooftop spaces. But now that they're getting so big, they're starting to become interested in that rooftop space operation as well. And these are big companies that can place a lot of equipment up there that they're importing from the States. So this is the point where Nakamura really feels that he has to start manufacturing in order to maintain his edge. He has to be able to say, not only can I operate equipment on the roofs of your stores, but I can also supply that equipment directly from me, give you unique items, unique attractions that I myself am providing. 
not to mention a little bit of the homegrown flair there because I'm not importing from out of the country. This is Japanese, made by Japanese, serviced by Japanese, mm-hmm. provided for Japanese. Exactly. He's one of the few truly fully Japanese companies operating, at least of the bigger companies in this coin-op space. So in 1966, he establishes a factory. And he starts just with kitty rides, because that's kind of always been his bread and butter. And what he does is he gets a license from the Walt Disney Company to actually use Disney characters on his kitty rides, like, you know, making little Dumbo contraptions that you can ride on or whatever. You know, so instead of a rocking horse, you're riding on Dumbo or whatever. First of all, Disney is ridiculously popular in Japan. Really? Oh, yeah. Those cartoon characters fit very nicely kind of with the sensibility of Japan. Japan's always been a visual culture and has always liked these kind of characters, which is why there's such a big anime and manga industry there, of course, as well. And little cute whatever drawing things that are prolific on pretty much everything. You have a cute little mascot on your shampoo, your Mm -hmm. cute little mascot on your light bulb. Mr. Sparkle! Or, as The Simpsons would have it, a Mr. Sparkle. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, Disney is very popular, and Nintendo, you know, does the same thing. Nintendo at this time is a playing card company primarily, though they're also in other toy areas by the 60s. And Nintendo licensed Disney characters for playing cards. Those cards were ridiculously popular. Namco's doing the same thing in rides. So, of course, that makes his rides very popular. And that gives him a way to kind of stay on top of the competition and maintain his territory in these rooftop spaces. It doesn't take long after that factory is established to move from just doing kiddie rides to offering other more sophisticated coin-operated amusements. And the first game that he creates actual coin-operated complicated game, not, not a ride, like a little horsey ride, is a game called Periscope. And we need to take a second here to talk about Periscope, because this is another one of those... Watershed moments? It's not just a watershed moment, but it's a misunderstood moment. Okay. Ask anybody that pays a little bit of attention, you know, pays more attention than the layman, to the history of the coin-op industry or the history of the video game industry. And they will tell you that Periscope is a Sega game. Really? Right. And that's because Sega did release Periscope internationally. And I think probably manufactured it in Japan as well. There is a Sega game created at about the same time called Periscope. And as near as I can tell, it is the exact same game. But I am almost positive. Again, it's hard to tell with these Japanese things. I'm almost positive that the Namco game is the original game and the Sega game is the copy. And it may be a licensed copy. I don't know you what don't know the legal thing is here. Like licensed it or something. But it appears that the Sega game is the copy and the Namco game is the original. There's a couple things to base that on. First of all, Masai Nakamura was interviewed by Playmeter in January 1977. Playmeter is one of the two trade publications in the United States for the coin-op industry. In that interview, he talks about 
how the first game that his company created wasn't just a kiddie ride was Periscope. And he says that Periscope was the first famous, that's his word, the first famous submarine game. The first big one. Mm -hmm. Now, Sega's Periscope was certainly a huge hit. It's one of the games that really established quarter play as the primary monetary exchange rate in games instead of a dime per play or two plays for a quarter, one quarter, one play which was, of course, the standard in the early video game industry and when we were kids and all the way up into the, to the 90s sometime. So that game was a big deal. So if he's saying that his is the first famous submarine game, that implies he's the saying first that it one came who first. Made it. And they are definitely identical because if you look at a flyer, and we can put this in the show notes, if you look at a flyer of the Namco Periscope game, still... Nakamura Manufacturing at this point, but right, it's easy to say Namco. Less of a mouthful. If you look at a flyer of the original Sega Periscope game, the games look identical. I mean, it's the exact same cabinet. It's the exact same everything. Obviously, one says Nakamura, one says Sega. But in terms of the cabinet design, it's the exact same cabinet. They are the same game. They have to be. And it makes more sense... First, you have Nakamura saying he did it first, and it just kind of makes more sense that the company that is run by the engineer would be the company that would come up with this elaborate new game, because this is a big, huge, elaborate game. It's a three-in-one game, three players, all lined up in a row, each get their own periscope, and there's a plexiglass sea, and then there's ships moving along on motorized carriages in the in the very back of this cabinet. And then when you launch your torpedo, there's a little light that moves across the uh, surface of the plexiglass to simulate the torpedo. And it's whether you hit or not is based on basically if, if your periscope is lined up, it's wipers and contacts. So you have a wiper on your periscope and you have a wiper on your ship moving by. And if they touch the same contact at the moment you press the button, it completes the circuit. That's and then just a hit. it blows up. That, that's the jiggery-pokery, but obviously it's presented in a much more elaborate visual way. So, I mean, this is a huge cabinet, and this is a complex cabinet. And it makes sense that it would be the engineer's company that came up with it first. David Rosen, when he's given interviews, has kind of said that Periscope was an idea for a game that he had. Not that he would do the engineering himself, but just kind of the basic idea of it. So, I mean, he's claimed credit for it. Mm-hmm. But that seems very dubious because Nakamura's claimed credit for it too. And I would tend to trust Nakamura on this point. I can't remember. It's been a while since we did our Japanese coin op industry one. I'm sure in our Japanese coin op episode, we talked about Periscope being a Sega game. But that's because I didn't have this new information at the time <laughs> that we recorded that episode. This is stuff that's come to light in the past year. Research is still ongoing, and I'm still learning all sorts of new things, even on the very earliest periods that I'm researching. That seems to be the way of things. And now the Periscope that came out in the United States, the Sega game, is a single-unit game. So the other thing someone might say is, well, maybe those three-unit models look the same, but there was a Sega single-player unit, and that looks completely different, which it does. But I do know for a fact that that version of Periscope, the single-player Periscope, came later. It was a three-player game first, and then 
Sega created this one-player version later. And this is the one that came out in the U.S. in early 1968. And I'm sure, I don't know for certain, but I'm sure the reason they did that is they did display the three-unit version at a trade show in Europe in late 1967. So they were at least thinking about exporting that, but I'm sure it became very clear to them right away that that was a rather large thing to ship internationally. Not only that, but a lot of people, at least in the United States, space isn't so much as a premium. So having a unit that can just go into a small confined place and have three players be entertained, it's much cheaper, simpler to have the one player unit and ship that internationally. Exactly. The three player Sega version definitely predates the one player Sega version. That I know for certain. The three player Sega version looks identical to the three player Namco version. Based on the totality of the evidence here, I am very confident in saying that Periscope is actually a Namco game. And whether Sega licensed it or stole it, I don't know. That's the kind of the first game they do. And from there, they get very involved in the electromechanical arcade game industry. They become one of the big four in the Japanese point-op industry and manufacturing. Sega is the biggest, Taito, then Namco, and then another company founded by an engineer called Casco that never really entered the video game industry, so they're not really known today in the same way as the other three are for that reason. They don't get involved in video games right away when video games start. Sega and Taito get in very early by importing Pong and then doing some of their own copying and rejiggering of Pong, and they are involved from 1973, from essentially the very beginning. Namco is not. They stay within their comfort zone with this electromechanical stuff, as do a lot of other Japanese companies. Video, as we discussed before, doesn't really hit big in Japan until breakout in 1977, period. Namco doesn't get involved right away, but they do end up getting involved in 1974, 1975 through Atari. Hmm. Atari, under Nolan Bushnell, was always biting off more than it could chew. Yeah, that seemed to be a consistent history there. That led to some great innovation and some great moving of the industry forward, but it also sometimes led to a lot of problems for Atari. And one thing that Atari did is, in the 73-74 period, they started expanding aggressively around the world, internationally, founding subsidiaries in foreign countries or making distribution deals with companies. So they founded Atari Japan. They actually established a Japanese subsidiary of Atari. And it was a disaster. <laughs> it was an absolute disaster. They didn't do it correctly. Japan is a very particular country in, when it comes to importing and exporting. They didn't get all the proper licenses and permits. I think we mentioned this before because it sounds familiar. We might have. And so they were unable to properly get their machines into Japan. Plus, as a foreign interloper, kind of, they had a lot of trouble getting cooperation from the local distributors, companies like Sega and Taito, in order to get their machines out into the world. They lost a lot of money on that thing. The president of Atari Japan, one Kenichi Takumi, when he was trying, he was not a coin-op veteran, and when he was trying to kind of break this stalemate, he went to Nakamura Manufacturing for help. 
to try to get them uh, to help him get his games out there in the world. And so they kind of began to partner with each other at that point. And then very soon after that, because it just wasn't going well for Atari at all, in 1974, Nakamura Manufacturing actually purchased Atari Japan. Okay. And that was Namco's entree into the video game business. Because they have purchased Atari technology, knowledge, whatever, whatever's in well, Japan. Well, yeah, at this point, they're, they're a distribution company. So it's not like Atari was manufacturing in Japan. That doesn't make them a video game manufacturer or a video game developer but it makes them a video game distributor because they are now the sole authorized distributor of Atari products in, in Japan. Japan. Okay. He had to go into a lot of debt to do this. It took him like two years to pay off the debt that he incurred because he was a pretty small company at this point. But he could see that this was kind of his way into the big time. So, of course, they have this great success with Breakout. We talked about that in the, in the Japanese episode, how Breakout gets really big. And, of course, Namco's the company that brings Breakout into the country because they're the Atari distributor. And then everyone else starts knocking it off. So Taito has a Breakout clone. Sega has a Breakout clone. Other companies that are entering the business for the first time, like Konami and Data East, companies that are very important to the video game era that got their start in video games with blockbusting games come out with their stuff during this period of time. So it's not like they have that entire market to themselves, but that becomes a big hit. But they're not just relying on distribution because now that they've got this Atari product coming in, and this is going to be a recurring story in Namco history, they dissect it and they learn how it works. A fellow named Shigeichi Nakamura and I don't know if he's any kind of relation to Masaya Nakamura or not. I just have the name. But this Nakamura, young guy in his 20s, led a team that reverse-engineered the Atari hardware and learned all they could about how that Atari hardware functioned. Hmm. And that's how they began building up the, the knowledge and the know-how to get into the video game business. Because if you can reverse engineer the Atari stuff, you can then recreate it and then throw whatever software you want. You understand how to do whatever you have to do as far as graphics, sprites, whatever. Because mm -hmm. I can't remember if we talked about this in our Japanese arcade episode or not, but these Japanese companies that were all involved in the manufacture of electromechanical games didn't really have the first clue about how the solid-state technology worked. Taito lucked out because they actually had a guy, even though he was hired to do the electromechanical stuff, he actually knew solid-state technology. And that was Tomohiro Nishikado, who would go on to create Space Invaders. So they had one guy, and he was basically making all of their video games. But if they didn't happen to have him on staff already, they'd have been clueless. Sega opened an American branch in 1975, and they hired computer people there. And so their very earliest video games that they created themselves were collaborations between an American staff that understood solid-state technology and a Japanese staff that understood game design. And it was a marriage of that. So that's how they got the expertise. These companies 
didn't have the built-in expertise because the Japanese in general were a little bit behind where the United States was on some of this technology. Obviously, they caught up, and they caught up in a very big way. Really well. But they did start out behind. And so this was Namco's way of getting involved in this, though they're not quite Namco yet. 1977 is when they finally officially changed their name to Namco. Obviously, Namco is a contraction, Nakamura, N-A, manufacturing, M, company, CEO, Namco. Mm -hmm. That's where it comes from. They started using it as a trademark on their properties in 1972, just like service games began putting Sega on their slot machines before they actually changed their name to Sega because it's just a lot shorter and simpler to put. Yeah, you got something that's just simple, small, something I can put as a logo somewhere on my product so you can identify it as me. Right. Just like Sega did that before they were actually Sega. Namco started doing that before they were actually Namco, but then eventually they just, well, it's now that we're, now that our equipment is so well known as Namco equipment, makes sense to just call ourselves Namco. So 1977 is when that happens. It's also when they do their first international expansion by opening a branch in Hong Kong. Hmm. So at this point, Namco is well-situated to enter the actual video game business because they are starting to have this expertise. In 1978, they released their first video game that they actually created, not something they distributed from Atari. That was a game called GB. GB. G-E-E space B-E-E. And it's a very pinball-like game, which is not a coincidence or an accident because it was created by a fellow named Toru Iwatani who loved pinball and knew Namco was in the coin-op business and so wanted to work at Namco so he could make pinball machines. Well, he gets to Namco and he discovers they don't make pinball machines. Nope. Nobody in Japan does except for Sega. They import a lot of pinball machines, but Sega's the only company that ever actually creates any. So he becomes a tech, working on boards, repairing stuff and this and that. But then, because he has some of this know-how, he's given a shot to uh, create a video game when they decide to enter the video game business. And so he creates a very pinball-like video game because that's what his real uh, interest is. And he's the designer. He's not a programmer, but uh, he designs the game. They follow that up with a couple of other sequels. He makes a couple of similar games, Bombi and Cutie Q. While he's doing that, a different set of guys is putting together what kind of becomes the flagship first uh, hardware system that, that they have. That system is what they create their first big hit on, which is Galaxian. Hmm. Galaxian was already in development when Space Invaders hit. And it already kind of had this outer space theme. Kazunori Sawano, who was the lead developer on it, was very into Star Wars. And he kind of wanted to capture this idea of an intergalactic war in video game form. But then Space Invaders hit and completely changed the entire industry. When that happened, Nakamura basically gave an edict saying that this game, Galaxian, has got to be better than Space Invaders. And so that kind of became their mantra and their goal. So Galaxian is very similar to Space Invaders. It's another one of these fixed shooter games where you have an array of enemies at the top of the screen and you have your lone spaceship, gun battery, whatever, at the bottom of the screen, and you're trying to shoot them before they shoot you. 
this game is a lot more dynamic. First of all, they wanted to make it more challenging, so they got rid of the bunkers. Space Invaders, you know, you're protected temporarily by those four bunkers. Got rid of that. It's just your ship on the bottom of the screen. Then they had, rather than the enemies just come down in formation, they had them break formation and swoop down and head towards you, shooting at you and, and coming down to the bottom of the screen and then reappearing at the top when they've done their course. They take attack and maneuver it against you. Exactly. It has smooth, smooth, smooth animation. Space Invaders is a little jerky. This one is just smooth, smooth, smooth and fast and very nice. Multicolored sprites. Space Invaders is black and white. Even when they make Space Invaders Part 2 the next year, which actually has color. Earlier Space Invaders showed color, but it was using cellophane, colored cellophane on the monitor. It was not actually color graphics. Even when Space Invaders went color, it was solid colors. So each individual sprite was one color. Galaxian multicolored sprites. With detail, so you can actually tell the detail of how the sprites were. Exactly. And then they have a scrolling star field in the background that's a multicolored star field, so that just gives even a greater sense of motion. And this parallax scrolling is pretty advanced for the time, too. So Galaxian is just amazing. It's like nothing else on the market. Of course, Galaxian does very well, and that's kind of their first major hit. Galaxian eventually gets a sequel, which is Galaga, which is the very classic well known. one that a lot of people may know now. Exactly. And Galaxian actually probably sold more units in its day than Galaga did. But Galaga hit at a time when the arcade was much more popular uh, because it's 81, it's kind of the height of the craze, whereas Galaxian 79 is just the beginning of the craze. And then, of course, it was re released in the 2000s in that Ms. Pac Man Galaga cabinet, which means that it became ubiquitous all over again in arcades and bars and whatnot, movie theaters in America. So you got that going on. And then at the same time, you have this other guy, Iwatani, who is also making video games. And then he decides that in the wake of Space Invaders, games are becoming far too violent, far too shooting-oriented, which is fine. He's not a pacifist. He's not against that kind of thing. But he really feels like arcades are missing an opportunity to appeal to more than just kind of these teenage boys that really like just mowing down everything in sight. And so he wants to come up with an arcade game that women will like, that the girls will like as well. One that it appeals to equally to everyone, maybe more of a focus to women. And so he tries to think about what kinds of things women like. And in his mind, one of the things that women likes. And, you know, maybe it's an unfair stereotype, but I'm just saying what Mr. Iwatani mm -hmm. <laughs> decided, I'm not making any comments on that myself, is that they like to eat. They like to eat sweets. So he wanted to create a game around the concept of eating things. And so he came up with this little circular character. The story is always given that he was eating a pizza one day and he took the first slice out of the pizza and saw that shape and thought that that looks like a perfect mouth and a perfect shape. He tells that story. It's a really good story. I mean, it's a really good story. And sometimes you wonder if really good stories have uh, a little bit of embellishment there. But he did come up, however he did it, he came up with this circular character with a mouth and wanted to create a game where this character is, is kind of eating things. He kind of does that. He puts objects up on the screen. His programmer does. He's a designer. 
And, you know, you have this circle going around eating things, and it's not working very well because it's very unfocused. He decides, almost certainly taking inspiration from a racing game put out by Sega called Head On, which was a game where you had multiple lanes, we'll put it in the show notes, on the edges of the screen, and each of those lanes had dots in them, and you had to move between lanes and collect all the dots around the screen. Almost certainly taking inspiration from that. He hasn't come out to directly say it, but come on. (laughs) (laughs) Two dot games coming out uh, that close together uh, that, you know, completely independently come up with? I don't think so. Almost certainly taking inspiration from that, he decides that to create the structure he needs, he's going to create a maze, and he's going to have this character-devouring dots as I'm sure everyone's aware of by now, because it's not like it's a big secret we're talking about Pac-Man. Obviously, Pac-Man is just the hugest thing in the arcades, period. 96,000 units sold in the United States. Huge, huge levels. And it was cross-gender, cross-age popularity. Mm-hmm. It just, everyone wanted to play this. It's simple, it's challenging, it's easy to learn, hard to master, and very, very engaging. So this one game, Pac-Man, instantly propels Namco to be one of the most important players in the Japanese video game industry. And then even in the American industry, but they don't have an American branch. They haven't opened an American branch. It's licensed to Midway in, in the U.S. Most of their games are licensed to Midway in the U.S., so they also license some to Atari because they still have a very close relationship with Atari dating back to this whole Atari Japan thing. When the crash happens, when that market correction happens in the U.S. arcades and all of the U.S. companies are really hurting, Namco is one of the companies that is most primed to take advantage of that because Taito is burned by the crash because Taito does have an American branch and that American branch does have a factory and that factory gets really badly hurt. We talked about that just in our last episode on, on the arcade industry after the crash. Sega... Same thing. Sega is technically an American company at this point. So Sega is really badly burned and pulls out of the United States entirely for a couple of years. They come back in 1985, but they're only in Japan. So Namco is the one major Japanese company that is in a prime position to enter the American market at the exact moment that there's a vacuum in the American market. And so that's exactly what they do. In February 1985, they purchase Atari. Atari America. That's correct. Now, at this point, and I'm sure we'll do an episode about this at some point, because you can do a whole episode on this. At this point, Atari, all that's left of Atari is essentially the coin-op division. There are a couple of other things. There's the Atari Television that's doing a phone thing. But it's mostly just the arcade division, because in 1984, Warner Communications sold the console and home computer divisions of Atari to Jack Trammell, late of Commodore. And Jack Trammell formed Atari Corporation. Well, actually, he had a company called Trammell Technology Limited. Then once he bought those divisions, he changed the name of Trammell Technology Limited to Atari Corporation. Effectively, he bought the name Atari. Mm -hmm. But only for use in the home with computers and consoles. It was a big mess. There was a lot of figuring out who exactly owned what, when, where. Couldn't use Atari, the Atari name in the arcade, because there was still an Atari. 
Antari Inc., Antari Incorporated, the original Atari that still existed, that at this point was essentially just the coin-op division. We're going to say it was for the sake of argument. The next year, after the sale, a little less than a year later, Nakamura comes in and buys the remainder of Atari, which is now going by the name Atari Games, to distinguish it from Tramel's Atari Corporation. In some ways, this is the original Atari and the true Atari, because it was an arcade company first. Certainly the employees of Atari Games always considered themselves to be the real Atari, not Atari Corporation. Because if you're drawing a line from the beginning of the company, it starts in the arcade with Pong. It doesn't mm-hmm. start with the VCS. It doesn't start with Home Pong. Namco becomes the majority owner. Warner keeps an interest. Warner keeps a stake in the company. They don't sell their entire stake, but Namco becomes the controlling interest. They now own Atari. They have controlling power. That's right. And they place in charge of that a fellow named Hide Nakajima. Hide Nakajima had been the general manager of Atari Japan. He had been in the paper industry. It wasn't a good fit for him. He was, he was not your typical Japanese man. He's passed on, unfortunately, lung cancer uh, many years ago. He was not your typical Japanese guy. He was at a big paper corporation, and the best he could look forward to is just rising up the ranks of middle management until, I mean, he was probably never going to run the companies, till, till he got up to like a division head or whatever and, and just retire, you know, just a typical Japanese salaryman, and he didn't like that idea. And so he ended up going to work at Atari Japan because he wanted the challenge of working at this kind of rough-and-tumble startup Wild West company where he could become his own kind of self-made man, which is very atypical of the standard Japanese salaryman. There's plenty of entrepreneurial spirit in Japan. It's kind of a myth that no one there's an entrepreneur, but still, it bucks the trend of the, the regular Japanese salaryman. So when Atari Japan was purchased by Namco, he came to Namco. Then in 1978, he founded Namco's American division. Namco America. They did have an American division. It's just that it was solely a licensing operation. It was a very small operation. It wasn't like Taito where they actually built a factory. So it was just like, you know, three or four guys. I mean, just very small just to do the licensing. Just enough to bring the product in from Japan and then get it sold and distributed throughout the United States. Right. So Atari Games becomes a part of Namco America when Atari Games is purchased. And then Nakajima is running the whole thing. Well, there's a couple problems. First of all, Nakamura and Nakajima cannot stand one another. Uh-oh. They don't like each other. They just rub each other the wrong way. The other problem is that even though Atari Games was now part of Namco, Nakamura still treated them essentially as a competitor. When it came to bringing Atari Games product into Japan or whatever, he thought of them as a competing company he was distributing, not as a portion of his own company. He always put the interests of Namco corporate, big Japan company, over the interests of the American company, even though they were technically the same company. Just because the naming was different. Well, I I don't know why. Who can say? But, uh, well, somebody probably can, but not me. But the point is, it was not a very harmonious relationship. So very quickly, it becomes clear that this just ain't going to work. So in 1987, the company becomes independent again. When Warner sold 
to Namco. They retained 40% of the stock. Namco took 60% of the stock. So now because they were the majority stockholder, it was their company. It was not a wholly owned subsidiary, but it was their subsidiary. Now what happens is Hide Nakajima gets enough investment together amongst his group of employees to purchase 20% of Namco's 60% interest from Namco. So what happens is now Namco owns 40% of the company. Warner owns 40% of the company. And Atari Games owns 20% of itself. Now, because there's no majority stockholder, it's an independent company again. Huh. Even though it's publicly traded. I don't think it's publicly traded. You can have stock in a company without being publicly traded. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. That shows how much business knowledge I have. But yeah. But the point is, it's now independent again because there isn't a single corporate entity that has a majority share of the company. So it's independent, but it still has a close relation with Namco in Japan. At this point, basically, Namco pulls out of the North American market kind of entirely in terms of operating its own stuff. It goes back to a licensing model like it had before it bought Atari Games. So this is really the period when Namco is at its lowest ebb in the United States. They do release some of their games exclusively through Atari games into the arcade. And they also get some of their stuff on the NES in the United States through Tengen, through the subsidiary. But they're not directly involved in the North American market at this point. But they're doing great guns in Japan because they are one of the very first companies outside of Nintendo to put games on the Famicom. Hmm. In 1984, they released Xevious on the Famicom. Xevious, we discussed in our Japanese Game Center episode, hugely influential in Japan, amazingly, ridiculously influential in Japan, because it came out right when the market was correcting in the United States, never as big a deal here. But in the history of shooting games, I mean, Space Invaders obviously is the biggest, but then Xevious is basically the reason why we got the whole scrolling shooter craze in the 80s. I mean, everything from Gradius to 1942 to R-Type owes at least a little debt of gratitude. Not all of it's directly inspired by Xevious, but it all owes a debt of gratitude to Xevious. So this game's huge in Japan. And so it comes out in 1984 when there's very little software available for the Famicom, and it sells a million and a half units. I mean, it just does gangbusters. And so at this point, even in Japan, Namco becomes much more identified with the Famicom than they do with the arcade. Obviously, they're still releasing arcade games. It's not like they've gone away. They're still operating arcades. Uh, they have some games that do well in the arcade. But the Japanese publications that are English-language Japanese publications that report on the industry in this period very much give pride of place to its, the success they're having on the Famicom as opposed to the success they're having in the arcade. While in the United States, this is very different. We sort of think of Namco being primarily an arcade company. We do, but if, if you really think, I mean, obviously someone who's a true arcade aficionado can name some of the mid-80s Namco games. But if you think of the big, big, big Namco arcade games, it's Galaxian, Pac-Man, Galaga, which is all early 80s. And then it's Ridge Racer, Tekken, Time Crisis, Soul Calibur, 
1990s. You'll notice... There's a little gap there. There's a little gap there. And their games were being released through Atari games, and some of them did uh, fairly decently, like Rolling Thunder, for instance. But this is not the period when they were dominating the arcade. Other stuff was dominating the arcade. Double Dragon from Taito, or Karate Champ from Data East, or some of the the other stuff Atari Games is putting out, and the Sega stuff, like Hang On and, and Outrun, the, the full motion cabinets. This is not really a period when Namco's name really rings out in the arcade, but it doesn't matter because they're doing great business on the Famicom. Xevious is such a big hit. They have the Family Stadium series, which is a baseball series that does really well in Japan. It's released in the U.S. as well under the name RBI Baseball, but it doesn't. it's not nearly as big a deal in the United States as it was in Japan. So they're doing great guns on the Famicom during this period. They consider themselves to have done a great service to the Famicom as well, because when they got on board in 1984, that Xevious game doing so well kind of helped bridge the gap between Nintendo's original release of the Famicom in 1983 and the coming of games like Super Mario Brothers in 1985. So that was very important. This is why Namco really felt that they deserved a better deal for all that they did for Nintendo. In 1989, when it comes time to renew their agreement with Nintendo, they want some special favors. Hmm. They feel that they have a very strong catalog, that they're a very big company, that they've contributed a lot, and they deserve to not have to follow all these strict rules that have now become part of the Nintendo contract, as we've discussed. Hiroshi Yamauchi said no. In all fairness, Nintendo, as near as one can tell, even though they controlled the industry very tightly, as near as one can tell, they never played favorites. You know, they never did special favors. There were some companies they were closer to than other companies, but when it came to these are the rules for publishing on our system... They were pretty much even-handed with those. Exactly. Nakamura was not happy about this at all, and initially he was going to leave Nintendo and just go publish on Sega's new Genesis, Mega Drive in Japan. Well, he had to do an about-face on that pretty quickly because they were making a lot of money on that Famicom. A lot of money. They couldn't just cut that loose and only do Sega because Sega was not going to take a big portion of the market, even with Namco's help, and they couldn't lose all that revenue. So he had to come crawling back to Nintendo. But he never forgot that. He never forgot that kind of insult as he saw it. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But I will remember this and have my revenge. Exactly. And that will become important uh, in the very near future, as we shall see. First, though, we need to talk about kind of Namco's arcade renaissance. And again, it's very much tied to Atari. Just as Atari was the company whose technology got Namco into the business initially when they kind of dissected that, so too were their close ties with Atari games responsible for a lot of the good work that they later did in the 1990s. Because Atari was at the very cutting edge of polygonal game design in the 1980s. They had a team that was working on a game called Hard Driven, which was not the first polygonal game, but it was one of the very early arcade hits that used polygonal graphics instead of sprites. 
And this technology was in development for a long time, the underlying 3D technology, because Namco had an interest in Atari games, controlled it briefly, and then even after that had an interest. They were well aware of what was going on in Atari, and they actually used this technology as well. Their game actually came to market before Atari's game did. They beat Hard Driving. Now, Atari had an even earlier game called iRobot that was released in arcades in 1983 that was actually polygonal, though it was a different hardware than this hardware that's being worked on now for the driving games. Namco's game is not the first polygonal game in the arcade, but it is one of the first. And this uh, was a racing game called Winning Run. Namco was one of the premier arcade companies when it came to racing games. They did Pole Position, hmm. which was really one of the first really outstanding racing games. They did that in the early 80s, licensed to Atari in the U.S. Then they did a game called Final Lap in 1987, which was the first game to allow eight racers to race simultaneously, linked cabinets. Oh, yeah, the classic style racing you see in a lot of arcades, even still today. Mm -hmm. And then the next year, 1988, they put out Winning Run. This was a pretty primitive polygonal game, not texture mapped or anything. But this was the first polygonal racing game. It beat Atari's Hard Driving by a year. Hard Driving came out in 89, even though they were working from kind of a common technology base. Namco got there first. Okay. The next step from there was to get texture mapped polygons, where you actually, where it's not just the, the solid geometric shape, like, say, Star Fox, where you have no detail, it's just completely solid shapes, but you actually have a texture on top of that solid shape that can have designs on it. Mm -hmm. And that's how you give the illusion of a lot more detail to a model without actually modeling all the intricacies of it. It's essentially like putting a, putting a decal on a model. <laughs> yeah, More or much. less. They were racing with Sega because by this point, Sega is getting involved in the 3D thing as well. And they're kind of racing to get the first, no pun intended, driving game out that have texture map polygons. They get their first, Namco does, with Ridge Racer in 1993, which is a huge hit. So this is how Namco starts becoming a big name in the arcade again, is through this 3D technology that they borrowed from Atari. The other thing they did in this same period is they finally came back into the U.S. market in a big way because they purchase the operations division of Atari games. So they bought Atari games again. Not the whole company, just the operations division, uh, arcade operating. They start setting up their own arcades in the United States. They also start releasing their own games through Namco America again in the United States. So this is kind of the... Namco renaissance, if you will, in the arcade. I mean, they never went away, but they are starting to become really relevant again because they were really overshadowed technologically by Sega throughout most of the 1980s. But then through their partnership with Atari, they were able to start getting their own technology in a more advanced state again, and they were starting to compete much more heavily on a technological basis with what Sega's doing. 
And they're also starting to open their own arcades and all of that good stuff. Eventually, they even buy Aladdin's Castle from Bally and so become the operators of, of Aladdin's Castle to become a major arcade player. The other thing that's going on in this period is that they finally get the chance to have their revenge on Nintendo when Sony comes calling. Sony comes calling to Namco. That's right. Because Sony is wanting to introduce this new PlayStation thing that they've been working on. And they may have also been burned by certain Nintendo people. That's right. And they need games for it. This is really the first time that a game system was ever launched by a company that did not have a robust first-party development infrastructure already in place within their own company. They had a division in Japan, part of Sony Music, that w had made a couple of games, and they had a U.S. division called Sony Image Soft that had made some multimedia titles, mostly on Sega CD and the like. Neither of those organizations were very well developed, and neither of those organizations had done particularly well. So they, for all intents and purposes, for the launch of the PlayStation, did not have a first-party development. They couldn't launch a Super Mario Brothers or a Sonic the Hedgehog on behalf of their system. Mm -hmm. Or even an Altered Beast, which was the launch pack-in title in the Sega Genesis before Sonic the Hedgehog was created. They needed outside developers, and most of the big companies that they went to said, we would love to create content for your system once we know that your system is going to be viable. Which means that they needed to sell the first million or so units before anyone would commit heavily to the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Namco, though, was very keen to break away from Nintendo and very keen to see a competitor in the marketplace, a viable competitor. One that could actually challenge Nintendo. Right, because Sega could not in Japan. And all of these companies, doesn't matter how they're doing in the United States, they're all thinking of Japan first, America second. So they would love to have a viable competitor. So they agree to collaborate very early. And Ridge Racer is actually one of the launch titles on the system in Japan. And then they also collaborate with Sony on an arcade board. So they create an arcade board that is based off of the PlayStation hardware, and they create a little game called Tekken on that. Which is mostly just polygon fighter. Mm-hmm. So they have their big 3D fighting game, and it's running on this sony playstation based hardware obviously it's more advanced there's more ram and whatnot it's not a one for one but it's it's based on the playstation hardware and it pretty much means that you can what you're playing in the arcade is effectively what you're playing on a playstation minus some graphical quality and maybe some sound quality right and then tekken became one of the very important early titles on the system when it was released in the united states it wasn't quite a launch title but it came very soon after ridge racer and tekken were two of the most important games in the early establishment of the PlayStation in both Japan and the United States. They became very intimately associated with Sony at that point, and it was years before they released another game on a Nintendo console. They still supported Sega, too, but once they could break away from Nintendo... They weren't making any game for them anymore, unless they absolutely had to. For the longest time. They eventually reconciled. But yeah, that's... That's basically what happened. <laughs> I remember playing Tekken on uh, first time I ever played a PlayStation was actually one of my cousins when we went back east for a family vacation. And I remember being in the basement. He had a PlayStation. He had Tekken. He had Resident Evil. 
and one other game that eludes me at the moment. Uh, maybe the PlayStation version of Mortal Kombat, I think. Mortal Kombat Trilogy, probably. Yeah, it had a problem where I liked playing that guy who could turn into the other guys. Yeah, that's really specific. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a character in there. I think he was supposed to be like the boss or something at some point. But he had the ability that through some sort of combination, you can change from either him into some of the other players. And so what I'd like to do is like constantly hit him with fireballs. And then once I had him in the air, I transform him into Sub-Zero and then mm-hmm. cast ice on him and then freeze him. Problem was, every time that he changed forms, the PlayStation had to do some thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, there were, there were problems with load times. Coming to grip with load times was something that challenged a lot of games. In fact, Censoring Ridge Racer actually has Galaxian playable in it. Really? During times when things are loading. That was their way of coping with the long load times in, in early PlayStation games, was just throwing Galaxian in there. That's pretty neat. Uh-huh. Play a round of Galaxian while we load the game that you're actually trying to play. Pretty much. Haven't helped you if they had to do that for uh, Resident Evil is how many times they things load in that one. Yeah. Just imagine every time you open a door, you have to play around a Galaxian before you can go on to shoot more zombies. Yeah, that would kind of destroy the tension. I think the way that Resident Evil did it was, was very effective because having you walking up to that door and then that door opening all in the blackness, it kind of maintains the tension mm-hmm. of the moment. It's like, what's going to be behind that door? What's happening? What's going to be when I go up those stairs? Yep, everyone had their own way of coping with, with those long load times in the early days, and some were more effective than others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's going on in the home, and then, of course, in the arcade, Namco is really kind of taking the lead in creating arcade experiences that can't be replicated in the home. We talked about this very briefly in the previous episode, but they're creating... Alpine skier, where you're actually simulated being on skis and moving down the course. They create prop cycle, where you're pedaling around uh, collecting balloons as you fly through the sky by pedaling this cycle contraption. Uh, Tokyo Wars, where you're sitting in a tank and have this huge screen in front of you, this tank-like cab, and have this screen in front of you. Time Crisis, where they add that cover mechanic where you're pressing the pedal. You know, they're really kind of pushing those big flashy cabinets. Not to mention the games, too. I mean, a lot of the games that you mentioned there have innovative controls, innovative play style. It seems like they are really trying to innovate and not just copycat the type of game that everyone else is doing. Yeah, they're doing a shooter, but they're adding in a really cool mechanic with Time Crisis. Yeah, they're doing a fighter game, but they add in their own twist and turn to it. And while I can't say this for certain, I think part of that just has to do with the fact that engineering is in the company's DNA, because it's a company that's really run by the engineers rather than the business people. And it's not just Masai Nakamura. It starts with him at the top, obviously, and he's still in charge here in the 90s and his 70s of the company. He's still the chairman and at times the president. It's not just him. The other Nakamura that reverse engineered the Atari hardware. Mm Mm-hmm. He's on the board of directors during this time period. He's one of the managing directors, which means that he has a a lot of power. He's not just, he has executive power beyond just being a director. 
when Nakamura steps down as president in the early 2000s during a period when the company's suffering some losses. He remains chairman, but he's no longer president. The guy that replaces him at that time is the person that created the hardware for Galaxian. Hmm. So a hardware engineer has become the president of the company. That doesn't happen in most of these other Japanese, these big Japanese developers. Sega very briefly had a hardware guy in charge of the company, Hideki Sato, but that was for a very brief period. Most of the time, it was all businessmen or people that were not in the coin-op industry. Uh, Shuichiro Yamajiri, who was in charge of the company for a while, was also an engineer, but he was an auto engineer. So they have a little bit of it, but mostly not. Taito is controlled by businessmen. Konami is controlled by businessmen. Capcom is controlled by businessmen. And many of them make innovative games, too. I mean, it's not like all of their stuff is bad or something. But it feels like Namco is a company by engineers for engineers in a way that many of the other big companies are not. And it shows in the products that they come out with. I think so, especially in this time period. And they're also the company that incidentally kind of strikes the death knell for for the traditional arcade game as well, because the arcade game Soul Calibur mm-hmm. is ported to the Dreamcast, the Sega Dreamcast. And it is a nearly perfect port in terms of the graphical fidelity and the smoothness and all of that. Plus, because it's on console, it has more features. It's one of the first times where you could unequivocally say the console version of this game is better in every way than the arcade version. This also starts to be some of the thing that leads to the fact that consoles start really showing with the Dreamcast that they're better than the arcade, thus leading more to their downfall. Right. In terms of, you know, they're equal in terms of graphics. And then you can have more depth of gameplay because you're not trying to, you know, kill the person off every two minutes so that <laughs> they have to put another quarter in or 30 seconds or whatever they're doing. Obviously, there are still things that the arcade can do. That's why you get these elaborate cabinets, because that's right. stuff the controls, you can't... the experience, the immersion. Right. But yes, that's the point where you can really definitively say that graphics alone just aren't going to cut it in the arcade anymore because the console can do so much better. So Namco played a role in that, and nowadays, I mean, Namco's still in the arcade, but a lot of its franchises are console franchises first, not arcade franchises. Soul Calibur is a console franchise now. Ridge Racer is a console franchise. They're not arcade franchises. They just happen to have arcade cabinets. Right. And they still create arcade games, particularly in Japan, but, you know, there's a, there's a real sense that it's a console thing. Obviously, we've more glossed over some of the later years of the company here, but kind of the final thing that kind of happens in the company history is really about their attempt to merge with another company. Because by the early 2000s, the Japanese business is really in a period of crisis. The console market in Japan has been declining since about 1997. Every year, it's getting a little smaller. There's a few different reasons for that. Uh, Declining birth rate meant that there were fewer children. Of course, in Japan, because of the whole idea that adults work, you have fewer adults playing games. It's more children. 
you have declining birth rate. Children are just busier. They're going to school six days a week and cram school when when they're not in regular school to cram for the final exams. So there's much less leisure time. Uh, this is the reason why both handheld gaming becomes even bigger and cell phone gaming becomes bigger in Japan before anywhere else because children are more and more just kind of sneaking little game moments on the train as they commute to and from school. They're not doing as much gaming in the home. And so every year it declines a little bit, and it's still declining. Every year it declines a little bit more. The Japanese are still gaming. It's just not on consoles. You've got that shrinking market. You've got an arcade market that is also shrinking. Even in Japan, it's shrinking. The company has some good years. They have some bad years. As I said, uh, Masai Nakamura does step down in 2001 after they have a particularly bad year in 2000 during the console transition. He's still chairman of the company, but he steps down as president. They require more kind of resources than they have. They don't have enough brands all on their own to kind of continue to grow as a company in this very challenging environment that they're in. And they're not the only ones. This is a period of mass consolidation in the Japanese industry. Square and Enix, for instance, combining in 2003. Mm -hmm. The first target is actually Sega. Sega and Namco try to merge. Sega is doing really badly because of their losses in console hardware. So they kind of require a merger to kind of keep going. Sammy ends up buying Sega, but Namco tried at one point during that period to actually combine with Sega. Uh, and that didn't work out. It was Sammy that bought them instead. So they finally combine with Bandai, the toy company. Mm -hmm. Bandai is Japan's largest toy company. They have a lot of very popular properties because what they basically do is they fund various anime and other television productions and then, of course, have the merchandising rights because they're doing the funding. Mm -hmm. And so they just reap Boku bucks on doing successful entertainment properties and then doing the toy licensing on top of that. Sort of the He-Man model. <laughs> sure. Though, uh, you know, in this case, it's Gundam. Bandai is really mm -hmm. the house that Gundam built. <laughs> I mean, they've done many other things too, but Gundam. <laughs> Definitely Gundam. They're in video games as well. They're in the home video game market, but they've never been a stellar player necessarily in that market. They've had some games that have been successful in that market, but not the really huge, memorable hits. And again, it's mostly based on their licensed properties. So Bandai has all of these great intellectual properties, but aren't necessarily always the best game makers. Namco has very good game makers, but are in need of more intellectual property. A match made in heaven. Exactly. So in 2005, in near the end of the year, Namco and Bandai merge and form a new company called Bandai Namco. It's actually interesting. It's now called Bandai Namco Worldwide. Hmm. But when it was first created, the international subsidiaries were called Namco Bandai because the Namco name was far more well-known in the United States and Europe than, Bandai. than the Bandai name. So the parent company is Bandai Namco, and that that tells you everything you need to know about who kind of the power was here, who was in the weakened position. You know, Bandai 
was kind of purchasing Namco more than the other way around, I think. And if memory serves, most of the high-level management after the merger were Bandai people, not Namco people, which again shows you all you need to know about who had power over whom in this era of declining arcades and declining game sales in Japan. But they were called Namco Bandai abroad because that was the, the powerful brand. So that brings an end to Namco as an independent entity. Obviously, Namco properties and the Namco name and all of that live on as a part of Bandai Namco. That's when Nakamura's involvement with the company ended. He was in charge of the company for 50 years. And that's why I said 50 years at the beginning. Uh-huh. Because really, the entire history of Namco before, from its inception, pretty much to its marriage off, let's say. And been 50 yep. years. And, you know, he was born in 1925. Mm-hmm. So he was 80 years old when he ended his involvement with the company in 2005. And again, he wasn't running the day-to-day anymore by then, but he was still the chairman of the company. And uh, in a lot of ways, more so in Japan than the United States, in, in the United States, the chairman doesn't have a lot of direct power over a company unless he's an executive chairman, which actually means he has executive power besides just presiding over the board. In Japan, at least in the video game companies, and I think in other companies as well, the chairman actually has pretty broad power. So it's the same. So I assume Nakamura still, even though he wasn't running the day to day, still had a large amount of influence, even at 80. So right. he it's was maybe broad strokes of here's where I would like to take the company. And so that was the end of his involvement with the company when he sold. So that kind of is the end of, of Namco and the beginning of, of something different. Pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting from a gun manufacturer to pop gun to mechanical arcade with uh, putting its foot briefly into video games and then exploding out into video games and making a lot of really memorable classic hits until it pretty much, because of declining and consolidation in the 2000s and the 90s, going off into whatever it is we have now. (laughs) That's right. Well, that pretty much sums it up from my standpoint. What about you? Yeah, I think that does it. Well, normally I would say, what are we doing next time? But I have an idea of what we would want to do as opposed to uh, something you've been going off of. Before we brought up the story Masters of Doom, it's a book, obviously, and it came up in our conversation here a few times. It's come up in some other things that I've uh, listened to. So I thought to pick it up and listen to it. And I was enthralled by the story, enthralled with the knowledge Someone over here, maybe even across from me, might know a bit more about it than all the little bits I've gained from the book. What we're going to cover next time is the history of it, Doom, John Carmack, John Romero, the entire story of it, and all the crazy that's gone on from that. That's right. I mean, as I'm sure a lot of people know, the... In some ways, the history of the computer game industry can be divided into before Doom and after Doom. It had such a huge effect. And the story of id, which is well told already, of course, in Master of Doom, is just a fascinating story. And so kind of exploring our experiences more than just telling the history, our experiences of kind of reading the book and, and reactions to to what what was learned in, in the book, etc. So sort of like a book report or a book review book review (laughs) (laughs) the next episode on the 15th 
will uh, be covering this. So if you want to pick up the book yourself, and this is not a paid endorsement or anything like that, it's just sort of like, hey, I thought it was interesting. Let's talk about it. If you guys want to read, listen, whatever. Really, it's because he'll listen to anything narrated by Will Wheaton. <laughs> and that's not a paid endorsement either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, before I put my foot anymore, I'm up my, uh, whatever it is, mouth. We will see you next time with Doom on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.